Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Tell show. Okay, let's talk some economy. That means we got to bring in one of these economist people. And this is the one we have on quite a bit. Our buddy Jericho Hill has returned. He works for one of those four letter, not three letter uh, government organizations. Uh, that's because all the other four letter words were taken. So they go to acronyms. Uh, Jericho much. Hill, how are you, my friend? Uh, just recovering from a cold and feeling pretty good now. I see you got the killer bees on your shirt there. Uh, that, that would be great if our government actually did budgets, but uh that it would be but you know we we haven't done budgets for several decades now and we probably won't do budgets for several decades it's more about uh it's more about your personal budget is what i what i'm advocating you need to update that for the uh, current parlance and back that budget up maybe would be a good shirt that that might be a retro shirt but okay All right. Uh, We've got, once again, we have what looks on the surface to be conflicting economic information. We're in this really weird thing where we have a growing economy coming out of the pandemic, but all the indicators that we usually use say things are awful. But at the same time, things aren't really awful to people other than gas prices and inflation and things like this. The GDP number did the same thing. Everybody thinks it's terrible and everybody thinks it's no big deal. Is it one, the other or somewhere in the middle? So look, you have two hands as an economist, so there's always on one hand and on the other. So let me demystify this this, this GDP. So first off, what happened? Um, GDP shrank by 1.4% at an annualized rate. Now again, that's taking the quarter's growth or not growth and putting that out for a whole calendar year, right? Um, and expectations were that it was gonna be, you know, um, it was gonna grow at a, at a slow rate. So the fact that it was negative Right, it was kind of a big miss. And so everyone's trying to figure out what exactly happened here. So, so look, it's a bad number, right? The slowing economy. The first thing that I want to say about this though is if if you're a non-economist, the fact that I one fact I want you to have is quarter one of any year is historically the lowest growth quarter. That is without fail. I can go back three decades and it's just a pattern that holds up. So even, you know, there's, there's probably, you know, reasons why quarter one is always weaker compared to say quarter four typically, right? Part of that might be because of companies in normal years buying up inventory in quarter four for the Christmas shopping season and them not buying inventory in quarter one because they have a bunch of crap they got to get rid of, okay? So we actually see this in the data. Um, We see that inventory um, was not filled up like it had been. Uh, In fact, inventory contributed to um, 
almost a full percentage point. Um, so you could back it out and basically GDP growth would have been about a negative 0.5 uh, instead of negative 1.4 annualized if we didn't have this inventory thing. Um, so that's the first thing that I want to get out of the way is quarter one's pretty much always bad for the year. Uh, it's almost always driven by inventory. Um, and here again, it's driven by inventory. So that that's that's one thing that I want to say. Um, the the second thing you know that 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 we see is um, one of the missing one of the misses was people's consumption. We expected it to grow by three and a half percent. It rose by point by two point seven percent. So I think we can sort of now say, look, I told you that if we if we actually had the inventory thing sort out, we'd be at negative 0.5. And then if consumption rose the way we thought it was going to, we would have been positive 0.2 or 0.3%. It was still a bad number, right? This is still bad. But you know, we can sort of get to figuring that out. One thing I want to say is there's a lot of articles that go into how like net exports contributed to this. Um, this is an accounting identity in, in econ. Um, and so if you're blaming the low, the, the bad GDP number on, on exports or net exports or imports, uh, you don't understand basic math. Um, so just ignore all takes that, that deal with that. Um, so so that, that's sort of like what's happened now. Um, one of the things I think I've been consistent in criticizing the Biden administration about is not being explicit about the trade-off that the, they and their partners in Congress uh, made. When uh, they when all these sort of uh, COVID relief plans were enacted, the choice set that should have been clearly articulated to the American public that was not was, we're going to protect jobs and we're going to get unemployment down fast, so that people go back to work because we know that if people stay out of work a very long time, it is very very bad not not just for the individual workers but for families people lose skills the economy suffers and the growth of the nation suffers in the long term that is a bad outcome so we're going to make the choice to put policies in place that are get people back to work far sooner than expected and in fact you know if you look at what economists were expecting for when employment would get back to sort of quote normal levels before covid we were expecting 2024 we're already blown past that in the first quarter of 2021 um where we're actually down to 3.5% unemployment uh, with our, our preferred method of, of calculating it. So that's great. That's a fantastic policy win. The cost was that prices would run hot. And I was, like many economists, expecting the price running hot to last for just a very short while. We were wrong about that. I was wrong about that. You need to own your mistakes. Uh, prices are going to run hot for a little bit longer. We are seeing positive signs that we hit the peak of the price increases in the last two or three months. We're seeing a lot more signs that we're going to start to see deceleration of price growth going into this year. Probably not enough to help the Dems. Um, but, you know, we were wrong about that. But like, that's the choice that so people are being hurt by high gas prices. People are being hurt by housing costs rising so high, unless you already own your house, which two thirds of Americans do. So you're on a fixed rate mortgage, so it doesn't really matter um, unless your property taxes went up like crazy. But, you know, that's another story for another day. Um, you know, so that's sort of the, the basic nutshell that I think I would say is, look, quarter one was bad. I expect it to be bad. It's not as bad as it looks, but it's still bad. You know, we made the trade off, right, to, to basically juice to get unemployment back. We're going to have high inflation. Now we're entering the danger zone. 
and this is where I'll let Andrew come back with something because the danger zone is we're driving a car, we're in, we're, we're in behind a tractor trailer that's braking and we have an idiot on the cell phone on the car behind us. How quickly do we tap our brakes? Because we don't want to hit the truck. This is what the Fed's trying to do. We don't want to hit the truck because that's bad. We also don't want to have the idiot on the cell phone hit us from behind. So the Fed's trying to slow down the, the price growth, pull the economy back a little bit without losing the employment gains that we've had. And this is a very delicate tightrope that's going to sort of be a dance for the next couple of months. Historically speaking, the Fed's kind of struggled at this. Yeah, and the thing we really don't want to do is get rear-ended up underneath the truck and get the worst of both. Um, let me there ask you, you this. Exactly. Since, we're, since we're talking prices, let's talk supply side for just a second. I was sitting behind a train yesterday. I was watching all those containers go by, the double stacked on the train. Um, we talked a lot about supply side stuff. We talked about a, a supply side inflationary curve back during the pandemic. We're moved on from that a little bit. What's the data saying about that? Is that lingering into what's going on now or did it wash out? And now we're dealing with more of the oncoming traffic, as you said, as opposed to the rear ending part. So we still have supply chain issues that are still driving up some of these, these challenges. We can still see that the price of a lumber is exceedingly elevated. And we know the price of some stuff coming from Asia is still elevated and we still have backlogs. So, you know, uh, the data that we're seeing is showing that those effects are, are, are mediating. They're, they're getting, you know, less bad over time, but they're not coming down as fast as we would hope. And this is part of the problem and as we want. And part of it is because, you know, this isn't, you know, COVID was an international event. And as much as we want to criticize the U.S. policy response under both Trump and Biden, um, and sort of also the sort of the, the response of the American public, um, compared to uh, a lot of other countries in the world, particularly in Asia, um, in some of the Asian countries, some Asian countries do great, but some of the Asian countries where we get a lot of our imports from, uh, not so great. Uh, take up of vaccines is not as good as what we have here. So, so it's getting better. It's getting better. Thing. It's getting better, but it's getting better slower than we would expect. Much like the cold that I had took a lot longer than I wanted for it to, for me to get over it. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a fence quoted from my backyard and they won't even quote you wood fencing right now. They said nobody can afford it anyway and it would take us too long to get it. So we don't even bother quoting it right now. That's how bad the wood is. I, I'm trying to build an addition, a, 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 an ADU, accessory dwelling unit um, on, on my property. Uh, and, you know, we're having the architect drop the plans now. Um, I'm not anticipating starting construction on that until maybe mid next year. Wow. Yeah, it's a mess. Uh, talking to Jericho Hill, our economist friend. Uh, let's talk about one other item you kind of you mentioned in there and kind of skirted by it for just a second, though. Inflation and prices, everybody thinks they're necessarily coupled together, but that's not exactly the truth. They're not exactly dead set together. It, it, talk about the relationship there with the prices a consumer sees on the shelves and inflation, because there is some lag there. There's some waves to those sorts of things. Talk about that because everybody just assumes, well, well inflation and prices are linked together. They go up and they go up. That's not exactly, it's a little more nuanced than that, isn't it? Well, yeah, I think the nuance is it depends on what type of uh, U.S. household you are. Um, if you're a household that owns your home on a fixed rate mortgage, property price increase, property price you know, appreciation, inflation, rent inflation doesn't really affect you, right? And that's a huge part of your budget. Now, if you're a renter or you're someone trying to buy and you have to buy because maybe you have to move to a city because you got a job there, 
right? That's going to weigh pretty heavily on you. That's going to be a pretty big impact on your budget. Um, if you're, again, like we saw this for a long time, we talked about the used car market. If you were someone who couldn't afford a new car and you need to buy a used car, you were paying a lot of money for that. Um, if you're someone whose household consumes lots of energy, uh, maybe you have a lot of little rugrats running around, um, you, you're, you're subject to a lot more inflation than say uh, a, a childless couple or you know, a single person living at home or, or just a couple with one kid. You know? um, so the, the, these, these price changes affect people differently. You know, it also depends on where you shop, like certain retailers are going to see higher price increases than others because of how they source their supply chains. So, you know, if you shop at Costco, maybe it's, uh, when you're in that demographic, you're, you're not so affected. And I think that's sort of, you know, where we might lose track as, as policymakers up here in DC is we're in a particular kind of bubble. Most of us are homeowners. Most of us do buy from Costco. You know, most of us are fairly insulated from a lot of the costs that uh, a lot of Americans outside of these big cities uh, are dealing with. And we have to sort of keep that in mind. And I understand, you know, why there's some, some angst there and why there's desire to bring that back down. You know, again, the trade-off was, did you want to be working, right? And have a job and not be out of work? Or do we want to face these high prices? I would take the higher prices as, as, a, as a choice every day over over leaving people long-term unemployed and just i think that destroys families far more than you know what i hope is you know maybe another year of dealing with price changes that are coming down but still elevated and maybe we get back to normal next year right yeah. if that's the choice that, that I'm, I'm happy with the temporary pain there yeah jericho hill but, our economist friend uh breaking this down so even i can understand it we're going to take a quick break we come back on hotel we'll get into more of this economic stuff we'll get into the politics of it it is an election year i'm going to ask him a little bit of rapid fire see what an economist thinks about some of the campaign lingo that we're going to be hearing over the next couple months jericho hill on hotel right after without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running everything would suddenly stop Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. I'm Andrew Donaldson. That's Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, uh, in the fancy dancy graphic print t-shirt, because that's what all the economists are wearing these days. Uh, Let me Jericho- bust out my tariff shirt sometime that we got a Senator Orrin Hatch to wear. Scott <laughs> Lennoncom would love it. Yeah, the late the late Senator Orrin Hatch, God bless him. Mm-hmm. Uh, great Twitter follow, by the way. I uh, don't think his replacement will be nearly as fun. No. Um, uh, let's let's talk economy for just a second. This is an election year, so I want to ask you a couple of things. Since no. you're the economist and I'm not, I just want I'm going to throw you some of the buzzwords we're going to hear because let's be honest, this is the eighth or ninth most important election of my lifetime uh, to be followed by the tenth most important election of the lifetime next week. We hear the exact. Same, I agree with you on that. I am with you a hundred percent. Yeah, we hear the same economic terminology every election so i'm just going to ask you how they land with you when you hear them on a campaign ad 
Um, you're there in Northern Virginia, so I'm sure your airwaves are all campaign commercials right now. It's pretty brutal where I'm at. Um, so let's hit a couple of these real quick. But um, just be glad you're not in Georgia. Uh, we, our friend uh, Jason Downey just had him on the program talking oh. about it. And he said, you know, there is nothing but campaign ads right now. I was just talking to a radio buddy. He was like, yeah, I hate it. He's like, all my commercials on the radio station, but it's paying the bills. We paid the whole quarter off in one ad buy. Thank you, Club for Growth. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, let's hit some of these items. Okay. When you hear a campaign talk about lower taxes, how does that hit your economic ears? Because a congressman, a senator, even a governor, they don't really have a whole lot of say over tax policy, but each and every one of them always campaign on tax policy. How does it hit your economic ears when you hear that on a commercial? They can campaign on what their state and local locality control, which is typically uh, a sales tax or a property tax, right? Uh, some states have income taxes, but not very many. Um, you know, I would say um, we're dealing with inflation right now. So sort of the last thing we need to really do is to uh, do a... a, a uh, a tax decrease, which will put more money uh, back into the economy at a time we're trying to take money out of the economy and slow price growth. Uh, you know, I, I get it. I get wanting to, to have lower taxes for folks, especially folks that might be hurting. But right, that could that could backfire. That could send inflation up. But then again, maybe these governors don't care about that because the inflation is Biden's problem. It's it, it's not the governor's problem. Yeah. Speaking of inflation, every election I've ever had, it is uh reaganomics the clinton economy the bush economy the bush recession uh the obama recession you see where i'm going with this it's always like this the trump tax biden cuts inflation. whatever so now we're right. going to deal with the biden economy the biden inflation when you hear that terminology because we hear it every election year whoever's in the chair they get blamed for the economy how does that hit your economic years um a lot of what we're dealing with are were things outside of our control in the in the country because we were dealing with a you know worldwide pandemic so it's somewhat unfair to pin it all on, on Biden's policies, but it's also fair to pin a bit of it on him. And I think, you know, especially like, you know, hey, they they wanted to get a lot of money they right into the economy to basically make sure the unemployment got back uh, to low levels that, that folks that we had. Um, and that's the consequence. And so they made policy choices that, that created the inflation, too, that helped bring it along. So they deserve part of the, the blame on this. Not all of it, but, but part of it. But hey. That's the breaks of being the guy in charge. <laughs> Another one that's the breaks of the guy in charge because it is a lagging indicator, no matter what anybody else tells you about gas prices. Uh, now, obviously, there's a there's a caveat to this one because the president campaigned on reducing fossil fuels. That means they reduce output. They reduce planning. So that some of that is on him. But there was the war on Ukraine. That's going to crank things up. When you hear about gas prices and the, we're going to fix the gas prices and the Biden did that stickers on all the gas pumps I keep seeing all over the place. How does that hit your economic years? I mean, look, this is sort of the two faced nature of politics, right? You said Biden, you know, was, you know, campaigning for cleaner energy. He was to to sort of reduce our reliance on gas powered cars and whatnot and bring in more electrified vehicles. That clearly was a policy choice that would imply that we'd have less capacity for, for gas and that would be a, a, an upward pressure on prices. And then, you know, they also want to release a bunch of oil barrels from a strategic reserve to lessen that, which sort of goes against the um, policy choice. Again, like, maybe it's bad politics, but, you know, when you and I talk, like, I just feel like owning what the, what, what your goal is and stating clearly what the trade-offs are to, that you're going to get to the goal. So, hey, we want cleaner vehicles. We want a cleaner environment. Uh, we want to reduce our reliance on gas. We want to reduce our reliance on Russian energy good goals, guess what? There are consequences to that. 
yeah. I, again, like, you know, I maybe, maybe, you know, two thirds, you know, world phenomenal, one third Biden's to blame, you know, like he's got to own some of it. Yeah. I just, I just wish that we could be more honest about this. Yeah. Here's one that we need to be more honest about that we talk about every single time. I'm going to bring back manufacturing jobs. Now, I always would love for one enterprising reporter to ask them when they're going to bring back tooling and ball bearings because you're not having any manufacturing in the country until we bring those two things back. And we don't do those in America anymore because you got to have that to have the bigger manufacturing. But when you hear manufacturing, that's a big thing in economics because of the indicators for it. It's something that America has declined in doing and we import it more than we export it. How do you hear we're going to bring back those manufacturing jobs? I mean, look, the developed world has moved those jobs to the developing world. Uh, that was a choice set made by pretty much every country. Um, the leading edge industries are not manufacturing uh, and will not be. Those are not manufacturers, not the driver of growth anymore. It used to be, but the world and the economy changed. I would hope that our policymakers who want to keep the U.S. focused on delivering those drivers of economic growth to produce jobs, both high skill and low skill down the line, you know, in these emerging technologies, you know, in these emerging, you know, industries, that's where we, that would be good policy. So like I, I, I get for the industrial workers in say West Virginia, right? You, you have, you know, coal, we're not, coal's not coming back. Like, you know, auto manufacturing to like what it was in the eighties is not coming back. And politicians should just simply be honest about that. And we should work to sort of think about how do we shift our job training? How do we shift our educational system to produce workers that'll thrive in that new economy and thinking 10, 20 years down the road. Look, I, 20 years ago, I was working, I mean, you had the, you had, you know, your guests from the, from the, from the board of education. I was a student member of the board of regents of the state of Georgia. I was pushing for policies that would increase funding for our community colleges and small local colleges in Georgia because their infrastructure, their what they had available in the classrooms for, for students to learn was just paltry. And that's where a lot of our, you know, sort of um, um, skilled jobs, not necessarily college educated, but skilled trade jobs um, and, and, and whatnot were, were, you know, where folks would go to get their, 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 their associate's degree or their, their training or their tradesmanship, you know, and we weren't funding that and, and we should. So, so yeah, like, let's think about where, uh, what the world's gonna look like in 10, 20 years, what these emerging technologies are and figure out how to, how to get those companies here, how to create them. Let's, uh, let's do what we should do. Let's take the wave, the visa requirements for all the smart people from Russia to get them to, to, to leave that country and come over here to the land of opportunity. Let's open up that can, of, let's open up that, that can to, to everybody. And let's just bring the bright people over here. Let's bring the energetic and industrial people over and have them start companies, right? Immigrants start companies at rates far higher here in the U.S. than native-born folks do. And those are the folks that we want to have because they're going to create the jobs of the future. Yeah, it's another topic for another day, something we're working on for a future episode. But that labor gap... Hmm, it's almost identical to the drop in immigration over the last two years. Isn't it funny how that works out? Uh, anyway, we'll talk about that in a future episode. One billion uh, Americans, it unites both left pundits and right pundits. Yeah, <laughs> let's let's open that can of worm another day, shall we? All right, here, a couple more of these real quick, though, because it is campaign season. We hear the same things over and over and over again. Uh, housing is starting to creep into campaign ads. I've actually seen some affordable housing ads. You never used to see those. I'm wow. for it. 
But the problem here is who makes it affordable? Because we all know when the government goes to make something affordable, it usually doesn't really end up being affordable. Uh, let's talk a minute. It's something I know you spend a lot of time thinking and digging into, but I've actually seen a couple campaign ads. They ran one in West Virginia about um, they did a block grant for the whole state to get rid of blighted houses all at once because it makes it a lot cheaper to do, you know, because you yep. pay for 100 houses instead of 10. Smart yep. policy, I think. Uh, so credit to them. But I'm actually seeing some housing policies show up in campaign ads. You wouldn't have seen that 10 years ago. How does that hit your economic years? I mean, housing is the single biggest budget item in most families' most families' budget. Um, we should focus on that if we want families to, to be better off. So, yes, I do a lot of work locally on trying to help expand housing supply. There's a lot of opportunities to do that. You know, here what we do is we, we like giving homeowners, uh, property owners, options uh, I live in an area where um, you can build a single family house. You can also build a duplex if you want, or a triplex. Um, you can build a tiny home out back. We call that an ADU or accessory dwelling unit. Uh, you could turn your basement into a grandma, you know, suite, live in apartment and rent that out. You know, and those, those are options right there that I'm, that I'm saying, those are options that local governments can, can enact. They just require a zoning change, possibly, or just a, a little, you know, local policy change. But the local government doesn't expend any money to do it. And local governments are cash strapped. Other things that I've seen local governments do is they said, look, um, we're not going to tell you how to build this new apartment complex. Right. But if you want to have your if you want to have a six story complex rather than a four story complex, um, we'd like for you to put X number of units and designate them affordable based on our affordability guidelines. And then we'll give you the, the variance to to build up higher, you know, like local governments can't really fund this right um they have to just basically provide the incentives for folks to do it on their own um and so i i agree with with andrew like we've had experience of like you know look we, we built section 8 housing a long time ago in this country right and we 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 concentrated low-income families into the same area uh and that had uh consequences that were not good for those low-income families and now we're seeing a lot more mixed use planning and development mixed income development which which based on the research, you know, has better financial outcomes uh, for those lower income persons, better financial stability, better household stability. So, you know, things that we can do for that, but it's not going to really come from a federal level, right? The federal government can't dictate zoning. That's a local thing. It's going to have to come from local folks saying, look, um, we, 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 want, we want people who have lived in this area to continue to live here, right? And we need to help that make that affordable, give them options. We want to have a diverse set of people, young and old, being able to live here. So we need to have a diverse set of housing options for them, um, you know, and try to try to work change locally. But you're also going to have to do that without um, you're going to need developers. You're going to need a private sector because local governments can't afford this. Yeah. Jericho Hill, our economist buddy, he joins us frequently, always working face, never as a heel. Uh, appreciate you, sir. Until we get back <laughs> on Herd Tell again, let folks know where they can follow you on your social media oh, and the writing in your Substack. I'm just waiting to do a Hollywood Hogan heel turn on Andrew in a few months, okay? I did it for the money. <laughs> I'm the third man. Uh, yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Motoconomist. Uh, now that my health is returning, I'll probably restart my Substack and talk about housing policy issues there. Of course, you'll find me. I will try to write more articles, as I always promise, for Ordinary Times. I love the site. I love the people on there. Um, and as always, I, you know, I'm on Twitter as Mode Economist as well, and always happy to talk to folks about econ, uh, you know, issues and housing and things like that. Yep, you're the best, buddy. I appreciate you. We'll have you back hey, again soon. You're appreciate pretty good, man. No problem. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
for the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.